Remain standing for our gospel lesson, also our sermon text from John chapter 13, and I'm changing it up. I'm just going to read the first verse and preach on the first verse of John chapter 13. Listen carefully because this is the good news, the gospel of God. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word because it is truth. And we thank you for your love because it is our salvation, our eternal life, our peace. Thank you for giving us a share in your eternal blessings and eternal communion with you through Jesus Christ. Help us to grow even in the next few minutes in our understanding and our faith in the love of God and the love of our Savior Jesus Christ. We ask that you would accomplish this in us by the Spirit who inspired these words and the Spirit who lives in us and among us. And in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, it's really, really good to see you here. Uh, this week has been difficult for everyone. And one of the things that I've been reminding myself of is, which I often have to, have to do this, I have to remind myself of things that I've even recently preached on because I tend to forget that God is working everything out, including everything going on in our world and in our church for not only his glory, but also our good. Of course, I, I don't know mostly what that means and what it's going to mean, but it hit me when I saw you all here this morning when we started worship that he's already uh, showing me uh, how it's good because it is, you probably can't imagine how good it is for me to see you all here to worship the living God with your brothers and sisters in Christ. So thank you, and I'm thankful to God to see you. Well, I was going to preach on the first 17 verses of John 13. That was going to be a little unwieldy for a, for a 20 to 25 minute sermon. So, and I, did, I wanted this first time in this new situation, I wanted to be easy, easy on us and not stretch us. So, I'm just going to preach on one verse. Now, my kids make fun of me because I've been known to preach just as long on, on one verse as as many, so, but we'll try to keep it uh, shorter than normal, at least today, probably in the coming weeks as well. And so the title for this sermon, rather than the one in your bulletin, would be simply from the text, having loved, he loved to the end. Having loved, he loved to the end. Now, as we make our way through John's gospel, the shadow of the cross grows longer, darker. And today we come to John 13, 1. 
and it's about 15 to 18 hours away from the crucifixion. In about 15 to 18 hours, Jesus will be hanging on a Roman cross as the world's sin bearer. The sun won't set again before Jesus breathes his last. Now, John 13 to 17, those five chapters record what is typically called the upper room discourse, because it all happens, all this teaching happens in an upper room in Jerusalem. Uh, and, and in this discourse, as we're going to be seeing over the next few weeks, few months, really, Jesus teaches his disciples about love, about discipleship, about service, about the Holy Spirit, about heaven, about where he's going, about where they will someday be with him, about union with Christ, about prayer. These are all some themes that we're going to be talking about in the coming days. And this final teaching, as I said, happens in Jerusalem on the Thursday night before Jesus dies in the upper room of the house of one of his followers, probably the house of young John Mark, whose mother Mary was a wealthy follower of Jesus who lived in Jerusalem. Now this upper room discourse begins with a dramatic call to follow Christ by becoming a servant to all. As one preacher put it, Jesus calls his disciples to be people of the towel, servants, foot washers. In the first half of John 13, Jesus tells us, which we'll look at next time instead of today, Jesus tells us where to begin as a follower of Christ and what your life should look like, what kind of qualities should characterize you and he tells you what you must do. And so we'll get to that next time. But today we're only going to meditate on this first verse in John 13, which lays the foundation for everything to come, really in the rest of the gospel, certainly in the rest of the upper room discourse. So John 13, 1 serves as a heading, you could say, maybe the title, a long title for John 13 to 17. It's, it's set apart from what follows it. And so it's natural for me to, to pull it off and to preach on it by itself. And so we're going to camp out on it just today, just this verse, as we begin our journey through the upper room discourse. Let's read it again. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, to the telos. Now, before we get to the obvious climactic part at the very end of the verse, which is where the title comes from, my new title comes from, let's make just a few observations on the way. Jesus says that, I'm sorry, John says that Jesus knew his hour of death had come. He had knowledge of this. This, this knowing highlights that Jesus is the all-knowing God. And that's, that's actually a theme in John's gospel. He's the all-knowing God who's in control of his own destiny. His knowledge is God knowledge in John's gospel. He's God in human form, God in the flesh, 
And as such, he's completely in charge of everything, including his own crucifixion, his imminent death. And look at how John describes what it is that Jesus actually knows. What do you think it is that he knows? The content of his knowledge, the thing that he knows is that he's about to transfer out of this unbelieving world to the Father. So you might have been tempted when I asked you that question, well, he knows about his death. Well, that's true, but look how he words it. Look how Jesus thinks about his death. He doesn't describe his hour of death here in terms of shame and suffering. No, he describes it as a home-going Back to his father's house. He's going back home to be with his father in heaven, which is where he was before he became an embryo in Mary's womb. That's how he's thinking about his death. The thought of Jesus going out of this world leads John to think about something else. It leads him to think about the followers of Jesus who are left behind. Of course, he was one of them. They're, they're not going to go. They weren't destined to stay, uh, to go. They were destined to stay in the world after their Lord's departure. And so in the last part of verse 1, he kind of switches over to focus on them. And he writes with very powerful, very pregnant words having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. His own sheep are not of the world, but they are in the world, just as you and I are in the world. We only depart it when we die and go to be where Jesus is. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, the word end at the end of verse 1, is the noun form of the verb to finish. And that, that verb should sound familiar to you in John's gospel. In John 19.30, Jesus will say from the cross, It is finished. His life had reached its end, its telos. He had accomplished his intended goal through his death for his people on that cross. So here in John 13, 1, the noun end has a similar meaning, a similar connotation. When John says he loved them to the end, to the telos, he's not talking primarily about the end of Jesus' life. That's, that's secondary. The word end And this verse indicates that his love for his people has accomplished everything necessary for salvation, which is why Jesus came. That's what he came to accomplish. The end is our eternal life. That's the goal for which Jesus came. So the point here is that the love of Christ for us, for you, for his people, for his own, who have been called out of the world even though we're still in it. Christ's love for us 
pushed him toward that goal of saving us, toward that end, toward that telos. He loved us all the way to the cross. He loved us until it was truly finished. He loved us until he had, a fi- he had finally accomplished eternal life for us. God's love for us, his people, is actually one of the great mysteries of life. Many of you, like me, have probably contemplated the question, or the questions, why does God love us? Why does Jesus love me? On what basis does Christ love you? What were the reasons that God decided to save sinners like you and me by sending his son into the world to die for them. That decision came before we were saved, before we were in Christ, before we had his righteousness. He made a decision to love us in that way. Why? What motivated that? What's the reasoning? What kind of divine reasoning led God to that conclusion? Anybody know? We don't. We don't know. That's the short answer. We just don't know. God has not set his covenant love on us because we were more lovable than the world, than others outside. There's nothing in us to commend us to God and his love. Now, there's the... There's the the general love that God has for humanity. And we could say, well, that's because we are created by him in his image and he loves humanity for that reason. But I'm talking about the covenant love. I'm talking about saving love here. There's nothing in us to commend us to that love. God is pure and holy. We are not. God is just. We often are not. He's loving. We're often filled with hatred in all forms of sin. By nature, we're children of God's deserved wrath. By nature, apart from God's special saving love in Christ, we were dead in our sins. And we were enslaved to our willful rebellion against God. Yet... Yet, God loved us. Yet, Jesus loved us. This is a marvelous mystery. In fact, it's so great a mystery, so great a marvel, that Paul refers to it in Romans 5 when he commends God's love to us. Remember what he says there in Romans 5, 6 to 8? He says, While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, 
Not after we were regenerated, not after we were converted, not after we were in Christ. While we were, while we were still sinners, ungodly, outside of Christ, Christ died for us. That's, that's the logic, the progression. God didn't love us because we first loved Him. He's not reciprocating our love back to us. He's not returning our love. We didn't love Him first. We did the opposite first. And then God loved us. 1 John 4 verse 10 says, This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Do you see how closely connected in the biblical logic that God's love and the atonement are? So we return to our mystery, our question, why does God love us in this way? Why did Jesus love us all the way to the cross? Why did the Father send the Son to the cross? The only answer, if we have to come up with an answer is the one that God gave Moses. Do you remember what God said to Moses in Deuteronomy? God told this to Moses about Israel, his chosen people, Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because... Listen... Here's the because. Here's, gonna, here's the answer. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your fathers. Okay? So, so you see the reasoning? God, the reason God set his, his covenant love on us, his saving love on us, is that he loved us. Jesus loved us because he loved us. Beyond that... His love is unexplainable. Because it resides in God's nature, God's personality, which is too deep for us. God has his reasons, but those reasons are not known, not comprehensible in any kind of real depth to us. And I'm guessing that the reasons will remain mysterious forever. In all eternity, because we'll never be God. We'll never comprehend the mind of God fully. Nevertheless, we're not left with nothing but mystery. Even though God doesn't explain why he loves us with saving love, and really, do we, do we need to know why as long as he does it? I mean, that's the, that's the main part. Even though he doesn't explain it, though, he does give us reasons to believe it. Reasons to believe that his love for us in Christ is real and that it's eternal. He provides evidence of his saving love. So when we ponder the mystery of God's love for us, one of the things we're after, and surely we all ponder this at some level, one of the things that we're after is assurance that God has truly loved us and that he will always love us. That's what we're after. We want to know, we want to be assured, we want to believe and feel that God loves us truly and that he will always 
love us. That's why the scripture gives us these promises that he does over and over because God knows we need it. Your heart wants to know. My heart wants to know. Why should I believe that God's love is true and everlasting? Why should you believe that Jesus loves you with a genuine love? A genuine love that he will lavish on you personally, on us corporately, on you individually, forever and ever. It seems too good to be true sometimes, right? That's why we have a hard time believing it. And yet, there is empirical evidence that it's true. I mean, the scriptures remind us over and over. But there's observable data that God's love in the past is the kind. It's the kind of love. It's the quality of love that will extend into the future without end. So we can look at it now, consider its nature, and know, yes, this, this is forever love. The key piece of evidence, of course, is the cross. The event of the cross of Christ on Calvary. We see God's eternal love for us in the death of Christ for us. The death of Jesus on the cross, you see, is of infinite, eternal value. We kind of grope for words when we try to talk about the atonement and how it works and how it applies and its extent and all those things and our condemnation that it takes care of, our eternal condemnation that it took care of in finite time and history and space. The cross took place in our world, in history. It happened in God's created space, time, matter, universe. And yet, it contains, it contained an eternity's worth of value, of spiritual value, we might say. During the few hours of Christ's crucifixion, God 